Greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Seminary Unboxed. This is Dr. Matt Ayers, your host of Seminary Unboxed and president of Wesley Biblical Seminary. Seminary Unboxed is the official podcast of Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we train trusted leaders for faithful churches. You can find out more about WBS at wbs.edu. And today we get back into our study on the book of Revelation. Where we left off was in chapter 4. We had a vision in the throne room. We ended in verse 6. So we're going to finish this chapter uh, here today. So beginning with uh, verse... Actually, verse 6 is is split across two paragraphs. And so... um, Actually, let's just go ahead and do this. Let's start with verse 7. So here we go. Revelation chapter 4, verse 7 and following. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like uh, an eagle in flight. Uh, so what's what are these four living creatures about? Uh, these are hybrid beings representing all of the animal kingdom, and they worship God. And so this is symbolic of all of the creation worshiping God in his throne room. Now, through history, each of the four creatures have been associated by the church with each of the four gospels. Different um, associations have been made across time. Um, for example, the face of a man uh, associated with the gospel of Luke. Uh, and an eagle with the Gospel of John. But again, uh, the associations are not consistent throughout history, but just pointing that out uh, from a historical interpretation perspective. So once again, these are hybrid creatures. Uh, it also draws on the Ezekiel tradition. Um, in the Ezekiel tradition, it's a little bit different, though. Each of the creatures has four faces. Um, but here we have a creature with a single face and four different creatures. But nonetheless, it's communicating the same idea. That is all of the creation uh, represented in God's throne room worshiping him, reminding us that all of the creation is made to worship God. Um, We could do a deeper dive on a systematic theological perspective of this in the sense that God is in unique category as an uncreated being, yet all created beings uh, depend on God and the creation itself for its existence. We have to eat, we have to drink, we have to breathe oxygen and air, so on and so forth, where God is entirely independent. He's transcendent. He's not restricted to time and space. And so the fact that creation is needful and its existence is dependent on another, and that other is God the creator on whom he is not dependent on anything. Therefore, God is of a superior category of being, therefore meriting praise and worship. And so it is natural then, uh, built into the creation, the very existence of creation, for all creation to worship God. And that, of course, makes us think of Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So here, these four creatures um, they could possibly also be understood as uh, cherubim in the Old Testament. There are different kinds of angels, seraphim, cherubim. Cherubim are hybrid creatures guarding God's throne. We're going to see these creatures come into play later on. Um, uh, so we'll be prepared for that when it comes. Verse 8, and the four living creatures, each of them had six wings full of eyes all around within. And day and night, they never ceased to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who, is, who was and is and is to come. This, of course, is a recall of the Isaiah tradition where we see uh, the seraphim, each with six wings. Isaiah tells us further detail, two to cover their faces, two to cover their feet, and with two they flew. Um, and then again, the same uh, calling out of holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Um, holy three times, this is superlative. Uh, in Hebrew, of course, this is in Greek because it's New Testament, but it's draw, drawing on the Hebrew tradition. And so they're saying there's none holier than God. Um, again, we could talk about 
the meaning, the theological significance of the holiness of God, but a part of his holiness is what I just mentioned about his transcendence. He is different. Holy just means qualitatively different in a different category. And he's in a different category of being. He is the uncreated creator versus everything else that exists is created. And so he transcends the creation, not restricted, bound by time or space, is eternal. Uh, But also a part of his holiness is his goodness. He is incorruptibly good, unlike the created order. Uh, Yet we are called to be holy. So what does that mean? We are called to reflect his goodness, to be different from the fallen world around us, um, to be distinct in a qualitatively different category of being um, from the world. And what do I mean by that? The new humanity in Jesus. Uh, In any case, this is the throne room. So of course, in God's presence, we are reminded of his holiness. And this is, a, a, again, drawing on the Isaiah tradition, uh, an intro, a notion that's introduced to us as readers in the Old Testament, that when you come into God's presence, we have to be reconciled to his holiness. So again, worship is the acknowledgement. No, it's not just this, but a part of worship is the acknowledgement of God's holiness as a being in a totally different category. Um, we are inferior to him. And that's what appropriate worship is. Worship is more than that, but that's a a key essential part of it, is the acknowledgement of his holiness and therefore his otherness, the fact that um, he is superior in his very being and in his ethics, incorruptibly good. Um, So, and they never cease to say, day and night, endless praise and worship of the holy God. Now, this, of course, would be set in contrast to the gods, the created gods that... um, the, the, this audience, the people around them would acknowledge and worship the Greco-Roman deities. This God is distinct. He's holy. He's different. For Israel, or excuse me, for the book of Isaiah in chapter 6, this God is distinct or different from the Assyrian gods uh, and the gods of uh, the pagan nations around the southern kingdom who are threatening them and calling on their gods to help them uh, advance their territories and conquer and colonize other lands around them. And Isaiah is reminded in his vision that God is distinct. He is not like those deities. And likewise here, Yahweh is not like Zeus. He's not like Artemis. He's not like Diana. He is totally different. And this is a reminder uh, to the audience that God is in a Um, a superlative category from the deities of the peoples around them. Verse 9, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Um, And there's an emphasis here, um, who was and is and is to come in verse 8, falls down forever and ever, is is said at least twice, um, if not three times here. Again, the emphasis here is the eternality of God's kingdom and his reign that is set in contrast to the temporality of the powers that be who are threatening the church, oppressing the church, and persecuting the church. Well, those powers will come to end, but Yahweh's reign is forever. So we fix our eyes on that which is eternal. Uh, Just as a reminder, you know, as Christians, we will be persecuted when we are faithful. Scripture promises that, but that persecution is merely a blink in light of eternity. And that's why our faithfulness is one of the reasons why our faithfulness has to remain in that, within that eternal perspective. Yes, it might be hard now speaking up, taking a stand, speaking truth into darkness, being a light in the darkness. Um, Yes, it would be hard. It's going to cause controversy. People will criticize you, but we worship the one who reigns forever. 
And those who, as Psalm 2 says, plot against the Lord and his anointed and conspire, they do so in vain. And um, it will not last. And we have to keep that in, in perspective. So the 24 elders, we've talked about them already, a representation, I think, of all the people of God, uh, bringing together the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament, the 12 disciples from the New Testament, giving us a, a picture of the fullness of God's people. Could be something else, but that to me is the best, um, the best explanation. And they cast their crowns before the throne. So they too worship here, um, uh, and they acknowledge God's superior status compared to them. Yet having those of status, these are important folks. They have crowns, they reign, they rule, they share in the reign of Christ, as is repeated several times in the book. However, when it comes to God's holiness, he is in a category of his own. So um, they say, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So notice that they point out the purpose or the reason for their praise is the acknowledgement that he is in this unique category as the uncreated creator. So they acknowledge their dependency upon him, uh, and therefore uh, have a posture of humility. So when we, what's our takeaway? And, and that's all we have for this episode, right? Because we come to the end of chapter four. We'll deal with chapter five in our next episode. Um, is a reminder of why we praise. Praise is the embrace and acknowledgement of God's holiness and the fact that he is superior in all ways and therefore um, is the only one that deserves our bowing before him. Um, he is completely and utterly different. And he lives forever. So I would say an acknowledgement of God's holiness, his eternality, his omnipotence, his power, his sovereignty, um, being in his presence, entering into his presence is sacred and requires reverence uh, as an acknowledgement of the fact that we are utterly dependent upon him for our very existence. Uh, And whatever persecution we face today, it is limited and can be considered merely a blink. So here we have the throne room in Revelation. Next, we're going to see in chapter 5 the scroll and the Lamb of God who is seated on the throne. Um, and, and how do we understand uh, that particular scroll? Um, so chapter 5, in summary then, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it narrows the throne room vision to the scroll that's in the right hand of God the Father who sits on the throne and to Jesus as the slain lamb who alone is worthy to open the scroll. Because the slain lamb alone is worthy to open the scroll, the heavenly worship extends to the lamb along with the one seated on the throne. So in chapter 4, they worship God the Father. Chapter 5, worship shifts to Jesus, the slain lamb, and the basis for that worship is his, 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 el- his I was going to say eligibility, the fact that he's authorized to open this scroll because of his obedient work. So the symbolism here communicates that Jesus is in a unique category being as well equal, co-equal with the Father. He is worthy of worship. He is divine. And what he accomplished in his death, that is symbolized in him appearing as a lamb that was slain, means that he alone fulfills the redemptive purposes of God in the creation. So this assumes here among readers, along with John, the writer, that the content of the scroll details the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes in the world. So as we see the scroll open, we are going to find out the things that must soon take place. So next episode, chapter five. We'll see you then.